Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Today on the podcast, what was the number one selling toy for each year through the 1980s? Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And we're looking at the number one selling toy for each year from 1980 to 1989. Every year there's always a standout toy. In the 80s, it seemed like every toy that came out was one of the most epic of all time. But before we start, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, here we go. So what makes for a best-selling toy? It usually comes down to a few things like demand, promotional hype, plus a lack of inventory. If you know something is scarce, it drives up the value. When you combine all of these things, especially going into Christmas, you've got a time bomb on your hand. And, you know, there's been notable toy crazes over the years. None are bigger, and I've covered this a lot on the show, but the history of the Cabbage Patch Kids craze of 1983, well, and we'll talk about it in a sec. Part of what makes a best-selling toy is, is a strong marketing campaign, and it makes a kid want that toy more than life itself. Showing kids playing with that toy can help make the viewing child like put themselves into that situation and imagine themselves playing with it. You add in that whole variable of pester power where the kid's bugging the crap out of their parents. This is a very real thing. It's an actual um, psychological term, pester power, where parents usually break down and buy the kids what they want. And kids are able to really dictate a lot of the family's spending. So let's look at a few honorable mentions here before getting to the top toys. Because like when you're coming out of the 70s, you, of course, have Star Wars. And these action figures really kicked off the modern era of what toys could be. And you had all the familiar characters, vehicles, accessories, playsets, all that stuff. You had the very popular Simon toy, which came out in 1978. You know, So that would be continued to be bought into the 80s. You also had the Atari released in 1979. And that's like a staple object of the 80s. But we're looking at the number one selling toy for each year of the entire decade. And a lot of this data comes from the National Museum of Play, along with Insider.com, which determined what was the best selling toy. Okay, 1980, the Rubik's Cube. Pretty amazing story of a simple item meant to help math students and then became one of the best selling toys of all time. The Rubik's Cube was invented by Erno Rubik in 1975. He was an inventor, architect, and professor. So he was working at the Budapest College of Applied Arts, and he often would come up with these like three-dimensional objects as a way to teach his students about space and, you know, moving things around within that space. He wanted to help change their thinking when it came to architecture. The first cube he made was made up of blocks of wood and rubber bands, but the main idea was still there. The first commercial version would be released in Hungary, and it was called the Magic Cube. Ideal Toys would then license it, but re-release it as the Rubik's Cube in 1980. And to say this thing was a hit is a massive understatement. Not only was it the best-selling toy of 1980 and found under like every Christmas tree that year, it was one of the best-selling toys in history. It would also lead to the incredible Rubik the Amazing Cube, which I've covered on the show, and you can listen to that. Okay, 1981, the number one selling toy, Smurfs. Uh, if I haven't explained what a Smurf is to you, then you're probably in the wrong place. But the idea of the Smurfs goes as far back as 1958. After that, they became used in things like comic books before making their way to TV. 
The Smurfs were created as a Dutch comic franchise by an artist known as Peyo. They were first called the Strumpf, which apparently was a made-up word by the artist when he couldn't remember the French word for salt. It sounds like he was talking uh, part or taking part in some other Dutch traditions before the meal. The cartoon show debuted on September 12, 1981. The show was a massive hit for NBC. It was actually the winner of awards for excellence in children's programming. It would also be nominated for daytime Emmys. Before 1981, Smurf merchandise was limited to a few small figurines. When the show launched, it resulted in an avalanche of Smurf merchandise, including toys, lunch boxes, which I had. There were plush dolls, Smurf cereal. Uh, th- there's over 300 million Smurf figures sold over the years. That's how big they were. Okay, the top selling toy for 1982, My Little Pony. Favorite of bronies everywhere. I grew up with a sister and I was all too familiar with My Little Pony. But this toy was a juggernaut and would be, uh, w- like, again, popular with not just girls, but even and a lot of boys were big purchasers and recipients of this as a gift. It would lead to the very popular cartoon show, movies, and this toy line that has lasted for decades. Everything started with My Pretty Pony in 1981 before it was relaunched as My Little Pony in 1982. The first line of toys started with six small but colorful ponies known as Generation One. Like other toys as G.I. Joe and He-Man and all that stuff, My Little Pony, the cartoon, was basically a 22-minute commercial just to sell the toys, but it worked. By the end of the 80s, 150 million My Little Ponies have been sold, and it still remains a billion-dollar property to this day. 1983, which we already mentioned, the Cabbage Patch Kids. The definitive must-have Christmas toy, possibly of all time, and the toys that started what a true toy craze could be. People had bones broken to get these things in 1983, and it really seemed to set the stage for what retail hell could be with events like Black Friday. The Cabbage Patch Kids started as a simple fabric-based toy created by Martha Nelson Thomas, and I did the whole show on the history. You need to check it out. This is just a quick recap. She wanted to create a doll that looked like a baby and could actually be played with, unlike those porcelain dolls that look like they're going to come to life and kill you. The idea seemed to have been uh, then borrowed by Xavier Roberts, who made them into the version you know now. So, you know, I mentioned those factors that make a hot toy, um, you know, the big thing that year, such as, you know, popularity, demand, scarcity. Well, the Cabbage Patch Kids had this in droves. And not to mention, they were all coming out at Christmas. So they hit the market in the fall of 1983 for the perfect lead up to Christmas. It's hard to pinpoint the exact reason they caught on like wildfire, but between perfect commercials, originality, uniqueness, news reports, it created the perfect storm. Scarcity is probably what really lit the powder keg as once the demand started to raise, there were just simply not enough to go around. The average store was carrying 200 to $500 max, but had thousands of customers trying to get them. This is what led to the riots, trampling, uh, the damage to stores and people. Basically, parents will do whatever it takes to provide for their kid. And Cabbage Patch Kids emerged as some sort of necessity like food or shelter. My theory of why they were so popular is due to their uniqueness. Most every doll was different, and this made each one feel more special to a kid as no one else probably had the one they did. When you buy a He-Man, you're getting the exact same one thousands of other kids have. With a Cabbage Patch Kid, you had one more specific to you. This is because Coleco made nine different heads that were computer matched with the bodies. So this led to multiple variations and ultimately more uniqueness. There was also the adoption aspect that made this feel more like a belonging than just a toy. 
Okay, number, oh, sorry, 1984, the top toy, Transformers. To me, the best toy line of all time. You've got the perfect combination of robot, alien, battle, novelty, all rolled into one. They also weren't just transforming robots, but ones that had an amazing backstory and characters. This was the smart move done by Hasbro when they made the toys, knowing that giving them an identity created more of a universe for them. They even had brought, brought in, uh, sorry, brought in Marvel Comics to create their story and their legacy. Transformers started with a three-part miniseries that also served as basically a commercial. This got us all familiar with Cybertron, their history, all the main characters. The entire first season that came after that was actually already commissioned and produced before that first miniseries even aired. The miniseries first started on, uh, sorry, in September 1984, again, leading very nicely into Christmas that year. I don't ever remember toys that I wanted more badly for Christmas, but this takes the cake. And of course, I've covered the Transformers uh, in my episode all about that, if you want to go back and look. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Okay, top toy for 1985, Teddy Ruxpin. And this is another show I've done as well. Everyone remembers Teddy Ruxpin, but it might surprise you to learn what a best-selling toy he or it was. He ruled um, all of 1985, which is pretty remarkable considering all the epic toys that were out at the time. So Teddy Ruxpin the Talking Bear is actually a pretty amazing piece of technology and an interesting story. He was designed by a former employee of Disney who got inspiration from the Country Bear, Bear Jamboree Chuck E. Cheese, and he was also involved with the animatronic characters from Welcome to Pooh Corner. Teddy Ruxpin started out as just a head on a stick as a prototype, but was pitched to head of Atari, Don Kingsborough, for some reason. He was able to see the possibility of this thing being successful as there was some real talent and creativity behind it. The goal with Teddy Ruxpin, again, like most of the toys on these lists and I've covered before, was to get them out by Christmas, of, of course. But the problem is this gave the creator of Teddy Ruxpin only six months, but he was able to make it happen. $60 million was put into the production to get Teddy finished in time, and it worked. Worlds of Wonder, who released Teddy, sold a staggering 41,000 units in the first 30 days. The plan was to launch him with his own cartoon series like all the other toys. Turns out they didn't even need it. From just September to the end of 1985, Teddy Ruxpin brought in $93 million. Converted for today, that's about $220 million. Okay, the top selling toy for 1986. Probably thought this would come a little earlier, but it's G.I. Joe. And... 
again, you know, it's weird that this is getting later into the decade, but from a survey of 3,000 U.S. retailers published in the November issue of Toy and Hobby World magazine, G.I. Joe was the best-selling toy of 1986. The toys, though, remember, came out in 1982, and they started accompanied by a Marvel comic series. And then the cartoon series came out in 1983. But the success in 86 makes sense for a few reasons. The cartoon was now more established and part of the popular zeitgeist for every young male in existence. All the characters, vehicles, and shows had now been released, and that had created one giant collective and complete universe. The cartoon show was established and must-watch TV after school, airing in that 3 to 6 p.m. time slot. The cartoon went into a full series in 1985 with 55 episodes after previously existing as a 30-second cartoon commercial in 1982, then two different five-part miniseries in 1983 and 1984. And like I said, by 86, this was just like part of, for me personally, that was part of your daily routine was watching G.I. Joe after school. Okay, top toy of 1987 and probably don't see this one coming. Not totally a toy, but it counts. Jenga. I think every household on earth has Jenga in it somewhere. And you probably don't even remember buying it or getting it. You just have Jenga. It just appeared. It's like Monopoly. You may think of Jenga as an ancient type game, but it was actually a modern original idea. And it was created by an English woman named Leslie Scott. Scott grew up between England and East Africa, and it was a game that her family had created in the 70s. They lived near a sawmill and purchased some blocks and created a stacking game that they had found fun and addictive. When deciding what to call it, they came up with a few names, including Cheza, but went with the variation of the Swahili name Kojenga, which means to build. Jenga started as a grassroots project in 1982 and would be sold at toy fairs. The first commercial launch of Jenga would happen in Canada in 1985 before being released worldwide. Toy company Irwin was behind this but hated the name Jenga. They thought that it wouldn't mean anything to anyone and they didn't um, know how they would sell and market this game with the weird name. Scott stuck to her guns though to keep the name Jenga and it was fully launched at the Toronto Toy Show in 1986. Check this out. 400,000 orders were placed right there, that, which is nuts. In 1987, Irwin licensed it to Shaper Toys in the U.S., who was bought by Hasbro, who released Jenga under the Milton Bradley name. Jenga then, of course, really took off with the famous and memorable commercial where they just embraced the name. It was a massive hit, making it the must-have toy for that year. Jenga continues to sell at least 4 million units a year from that point up till the year 2000. Okay, number 80, sorry, number 1988, the number one selling toy, and there's no way you will get this. I didn't. The Koosh Ball. Do you remember the Koosh Ball? Um, you might not even, you know what I'm talking about, but you probably might not even know the name, the sort of feathery ball with the strands coming off it that was really light and whatever but it was the best selling you might have to even just like google images thing if you can't picture it, but it was the number one selling toy of 1986 and like most toys the simplicity of the koosh balls which helped lead to its success it's base it all that's all it is it's a soft squishy ball with rubber strings attached you could throw it if you had one of these things you could throw it as hard as you wanted and not really hurt anything or anyone i think the big appeal here is that they were cheap 
every kid could get one for Christmas as they were inexpensive. And, um, you know, it was easier for kids not to feel, you know, left out of the loop, you know, compare this to asking for a Teddy Ruxpin, which back then cost the equivalent of $160. Plus the cassettes were $12.95 a pop. The Koosh ball was created by Scott Stillinger who wanted something to help, uh, help his kids learn to catch. He started putting this thing together using a box of rubber bands and came up with a prototype that he brought to his brother-in-law who worked for Mattel. The ball is made of 2,000 rubber sting- strings and the name Koosh comes from the sound made when you caught it. Some people didn't get it at first, but consumers did, making it that year's number one selling toy. There would even be weird things like a comic book spinoff. That's how big the Koosh ball was. Okay, number uh, sorry, 1989, the number one toy the Game Boy. I'm not sure again if the Game Boy is considered a video game or a toy or if that's the same thing, but according to Reader's Digest, the the Game Boy was king in 1989. Video games were now back on the upswing, mostly thanks to the NES, but the Game Boy really caused a frenzy. It seems kind of quaint now, but being able to take your video games on the go with you is pretty mind-blowing. And these weren't like the crappy handheld game watches of yesteryear. The Game Boy is, of course, the 8-bit handheld device released by Nintendo. It came out first in Japan in April of 1989, then in North America in July. The cool thing with the Game Boy was you felt like you had a portable NES. It even had the same familiar control pad built into it, which sort of evolved from the Game & Watch as well. It was black and white, but it didn't matter. The whole concept worked, not to mention the monumental success of one of the featured games, Tetris. Tetris would end up being the driving force behind the early success of the game, as it's one of the most popular and addicting games of all time. When the Game Boy was released in North America, it sold 40,000 units in its first day. It was then off and running to become the hottest toy of that year. Okay, we'll finish it up with sort of the fun fact here, fact of the podcast. Which was the overall best-selling toy of the 80s? Let's look at what from all of these was actually number one for the entire decade. We actually have to dismiss a few things here when trying to find the winner, though. We're determining this toy, um, this number one toy, because it was released in the 80s. That's the main criteria. Because some of the toys created in earlier decades, say such as Barbie, Lego, Hot Wheels, continued to be massive sellers in the 80s. But if we're looking at the one toy that was released in the 80s that emerges as the single best-selling toy of the decade, it is the Rubik's Cube. Again, the phenomenon that is the, the Rubik's Cube just cannot be understated. It would end up like selling an astonishing 350 million units. Again, it's another one of those toys that just seem to exist in every house. Um, you, you probably don't remember getting it or buying it, but you had a Rubik's Cube. The Rubik's Cube was so big that at the end of that year when it was released, uh, sorry, three of the top 10 New York Times best-selling books were books on how to solve the Rubik's Cube. That's how big the Rubik's Cube was. So uh, not only the biggest seller of the 80s, but one of the most successful toys in history. So we'll finish it there. Thank you for listening. Hope you like this show. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. Don't you dare miss it.